On today's edition of Grape Encounters Radio, we will take you where no wine show has ever dared to go before. Here's a little taste of what's to come. What's your take on it? Rosé, definitely red hot, right? It's absolutely red hot. When we spoke to the trade about this, when we asked them what were the trends that they were expecting to see for the next two years, rosé came up for 40% of them as the first thing they mentioned. So it's on everybody's mind. And now from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in the quaint, friendly, and historic town of Atascadero, California, it's time to enjoy an hour of of the really good stuff on Grape Encounters Radio. Heck, we may even uncork a bottle or two of wine while we're at it. Here's David Wilson. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow I think one of the most fun things that I get to do in producing this show is to crunch through all of the different studies that come out and pertain to the wine industry. There is so much going on all over the world and so many revelations that really pique my interest. There's a study that just came out in October by the international marketing firm Sopexa. It is the Wine Trade Monitor for 2016. And I'm so pleased to have on the line the managing director for Sopexa. Texas, USA for the United States, Pauline Uda. And uh, Pauline, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So you're in the New York office. That is correct. Let's talk about Sopexa in general because it's such a massive firm. You've got so many interesting clients. You're really food and wine marketing. Is there anything else that you venture into besides those two categories? We do venture into spirits. I have to say, as long as you can drink it and enjoy it, that's something that we'll cover too. It is actually interesting to look at the spirit world because there are so many of these craft spirits that are entering the marketplace and it's happening at, I think, a really, really fast pace. And it doesn't seem like there's any end in sight to that. Well, I've just heard recently that craft beer was sort of hitting its maximum amount. At a certain point, as much as we have consumers that are looking for needs, and new, there's still a reality of cost of distribution and cost of entering a market. And I think there is going to be a ceiling for the number of products that you can have on any given shelf. Yeah, you walk into a liquor store or wherever it is that you get your wine and spirits, and it is amazing how little shelf space there now is. I don't know how just the retail market could even consume any more products. Yeah, usually when we're in conversations with people from stores, they usually tell us, okay, well, if I take this product, I'll have to take this one off. So it is very much a replacement. You don't have that many stores that can keep on adding. Something's got to go. But of course, we do live in a world now where we have the likes of Total Wine and more, where they Mm -hmm. stock just an enormous amount of product. Anyway, let's uh, go back to your company, though, Sopexa. This is a very big firm. You're in how many countries now? We are in 26 countries, uh, but we cover a few more. We've been around for 50 plus years. And that has allowed us to sort of develop that insight over the years and that network over the years that's very specific to our industry because no matter where you go in the world, you always have a very close-knit network in the food and beverage world and you really need experts to understand it and to get into it. How do the various offices of Sopexa work together You know, across the planet? Very closely, actually. Yeah. Our headquarters is based out of France, which I guess sort of makes sense for a food and wine-based marketing agency. But 
but we are located all over. And for example, here out of the U.S., I will help with my team, American clients that are looking to market their products across the world. So for example, we help Table Grapes from California with their PR efforts in China. And there, obviously, we are the ones that are in contact with the clients in California, but all of the execution and all the on-the-ground boots are managed by the team in China. And then how many different products do you now represent? It's got to be a huge number. Yeah, actually, across the world, that's probably (laughs) quite a few. We represent a lot of our commodity boards or regions. So, for example, we tend to not represent that many individual Loire wine brands. We will represent the entire region. And that means that when you look at it, when we do a tasting event for that region, we'll be representing 130 wines in one same evening. Geez, that is a bunch. Hey, so glad to have on the line Pauline Uda. She is the U.S. Managing Director for Sopexa USA. And now we're going to shift our attention to this study. It's the Wine Trade Monitor 2016. And there are a number of conclusions that you come to in this study that I think are fascinating. Some of them I found myself going, I could have told you so. And certainly, I think, confirmed a number of things that I've been preaching for a really long time. Now, to do a study like this, you have to talk to a lot of people in the industry. How do you go about setting up that core group of people? You know, how do you decide who's going to weigh in when you're looking? for these kinds of answers. Yep. So, well, the first thing, obviously, is figuring out which countries we want to focus on. Obviously, everybody is interested in the U.S. market since it's become the number one market in wine. So that was an obvious choice. But then looking at where our clients are thinking of going and where there's already a pretty strong market. And so we looked at Japan, Korea, China, Hong Kong, Russia, Canada, and the USA. But we were mostly interested in seeing how the wine-producing countries were looking to export to these other major markets. And the really interesting thing when we do that is sometimes it's easiest to understand a trend when it's compared to some place else. So looking at our results compared to China and compared to Japan gives us uh, also a good sense of how things are evolving here compared to other countries. Okay, so let's just dive in and look at some of the conclusions that you've come to. Let's start with the first section which is country of origin. Tell me what you discovered there. Yep. So what we looked at here when we spoke to American distributors, importers, retailers, we asked them what are the three origins that are at the head of your sales? What are your three most important origins? And in the U.S., we were looking at France, Italy, and the USA. So nothing too surprising here. I think a lot of people that listen to you might be surprised that USA doesn't come from First, in that ranking, the difference is minimal, in all honesty. But also, when you're talking to importers, obviously, they're not that interested in uh, American-based products. But then when you look at other countries, the U.S. obviously is much less present. So in China, it's going to be France, Chile, and Australia. So it's interesting to see how important an origin is in each country and also where they expect to see those go. I think one of the things that is befuddling to a lot of people in the wine industry 
is the fact that if, if I go to France and I walk into a retail store that sells wine, I'm not going to see much in the way of American wines there and certainly not the boutique brands. On the other hand, if you go into a large wine retailer in the States, you see a completely different story. You see tons of imports there. And it seems to me like there's always been a real imbalance. Is that the case? And can you shed a little light on that? Well, I think what we see is, first of all, just a reflection of cost at the endpoint. When you look at a product that leaves Europe at a winery, whether it be in Spain or in France, right. by the time it gets onto American shelves, and I'm not talking restaurants, but shelves, you're looking at times four the price. Wow. And obviously, you know, there's one step less when you're looking at an American product. Now, an American product will, of course, increase because it's got to go through the distributor and then it's got to go through the retailer. So everybody's got to take their margin along the way. But you've got a few more steps with the products that are coming from abroad. And when they get here, you know, a French product and American product are going to be about, you know, priced equal. If you take the American product and you ship it over to France, it's going to be significantly higher and it's price-wise not going to be able to compete. But it's interesting that when you do go into a retail store in Europe, generally speaking, I'm surprised at how inexpensively I can buy a bottle of wine there. Mm -hmm. And not really the case here. You can buy quality wine in Europe, you know, very inexpensively. In the U.S., it's a completely different story. Are there stats to bear that out or am I just looking in the wrong places? No, you definitely have a reality here. The American producers generally also invest significantly more in marketing, which of course those costs have to be reflected in the price of the product they sell. That's not the case for everywhere and you will find, for example, pretty affordable local wines when you go to Oregon. But when you're looking at players that are trying to really have a national presence, they will need to invest in marketing, and that is reflected in the price. Yeah. Um, when you're looking at France, that is much less brand-focused and where consumers tend to feel more comfortable learning about products over time and have heard of all these names you know, growing up, you do have less investment in marketing and therefore less expensive price unless it has to go through the multi-layers that are required to get to us. But over there, it's definitely cheaper. That being said, you cross the border to Canada where you've got a monopoly situation and the products are two to three times the price that we have here. So, wow. you know, we're, we're not that bad off when compared to the budgets that happen over there in spirits and wine. Okay, well, we are talking to Pauline Uda. She is the Managing Director for Sopexa USA. And we'll talk more about the Wine Trade Monitor for 2016 when we return with Grape Encounters. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue right after this. This segment of Grape Encounters is presented by the incomparable wines of Cardella Winery, a favorite of everyone here at Grape Encounters. Purely delicious, purely amazing. Learn more at CardellaWinery.com. Hello, Mr. Wilson. Wilson! And now, here's the guy who went from hipster to sipster. 
David Wilson. No, 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 Mr. Wilson. Welcome. This isn't where you should be. Welcome. Everybody's waiting patiently. And we are back with Brave Encounters Radio. And so pleased to have on with me the managing director of Sopexa USA, Pauline Uda. She is talking with us today about... This study that just came out, they just completed, actually. It's the Wine Trade Monitor. And Pauline, is this a study that you do every year? This comes out every year about this time? This is actually a study we do every two years. Every two Um, years. First of all, trends tend to not necessarily shift that quickly in the world of wine. And also, it's quite a lot of work to go out and ask all of our contacts within the trade for their feedback. So every two years seems like enough. All right, so let's look at some of the key findings here. We were talking about France being a must-have wine on retail shelves. But what really I find interesting is Chile. As most people know, my wife and I actually run a retail wine store as well. And the demand for Chilean wines is just amazing. And the quality of what you can get from Chile for your dollar is also equally amazing. Talk to me a little bit about Chile and what you've learned. Yep. Well, there's a few things that we've seen from the different regions. The interesting thing with Chile is that it's actually one of the regions that seems to be a little divisive with the trade. Some trade really believe strongly in it. Some trade believe that it might be overshadowed by the steep rise of Spanish wines, which seems to be the new hot thing these days. And I agree with you. Chile makes great quality wines, especially in the U.S. for the price you can get them for. But like we said earlier, there's so many, so many bottles you can have on the shelf. And it seems like Spain may be sort of budging their way into that shelf space and might be budging Chile off. That being said, like I said, it's divisive. Some believe strongly that it will continue to rise. Quite a few believe that it's going to decrease. There is that one factor that I think is so important. It's the compatibility of these wines with certainly the American palate. I think there's a very close match between Chilean wines and wines that we might see come out of the Napa Valley. The Chilean wines seem to be very tuned to the American palate. I'm not so sure about Spanish wines, but I guess if the numbers bear it out, then maybe then we need to really be redirecting consumers toward those wines. Well, one of the things, you know, not all Spanish wines are created equal. And you mentioned earlier the grapes that seem to be interesting the most. One of the trends that seems to be coming out of this research is the rise, for example, of of Garnacha, uh, which is very present in Spain, also a little bit in France. But that seems to be a hot, trending grape. I don't think it's just hot. I think it is absolutely on fire right now. Mm. And the demand for Grenache that I see is just amazing. People are turning away from wines like Zinfandel and going for Grenache instead or Grenache. It's like a kid in a candy store when you introduce wine consumers to these grapes. That's very true. And Garnacha is actually one of the grapes that is not divisive at all. When we asked all of our trade which grape is going to be increasing in sales over the next two years and which is going to be decreasing, pretty much everybody agreed that Garnacha is going to just stay as a rising star for the next two years. So at what other varietals expense? Strangely, the ones that seem to be decreasing recently, 
We have uh, Chardonnay, which seems to be one of the more divisive. It seems to be going up for some, down for others. Um, there were a lot of wines that were very trendy for a while, like Moscato, that seems to be decreasing. And unfortunately, one of my favorite, Riesling, that seems to be decreasing. And there, you know, all, whether you're talking about Moscato or Riesling, you also have sort of those very sweet versus the dry. You have very different products under those names. Yeah. And so you may also have a falling off from one, but, you know, the other stick sticking around. We'll have to see where how that plays out. Well, Chardonnay for for many years now, I think, has been the varietal, albeit, you know, one of the two or three most popular varietals in the world. It seems also to be one that is wandering aimlessly because we go from heavily oaked wines to no oak and everything in between. And it, it just seems like it's having a hard time, especially recently, finding its footing. And I think what people are realizing also, like you said, is that not all Chardonnays are created equal. So if you've got a Chardonnay, for example, from Chablis, it's not going to be at all the same thing as something coming out from California. And again, I think that's sort of the same search for more quality, more premium wines that are making a lot of people look for new. Although we have to realize that you've got great quality from these grapes that have been around for a while, but that are sometimes better treated in some regions than others. Yeah, so interesting. Pauline Uda is the Managing Director of Sopexa USA, and we're talking about the Wine Trade Monitor that they publish every couple of years for 2016. Let's stay on Spain for just a moment because there are some other varietals that are really hot right now that I think people are discovering. Talk about Rioja. Um, let me see. So Rioja obviously has been a growing region. First of all, uh, from just the marketing front, it's done a great job at getting noticed by the millennials, the ones that everybody tries to go after. But they're really out there pushing these wines all over the world, are they not? They, they really have done a huge push in the U.S. And so one of the very interesting parts of the research is looking at the regions that are going to be trending up and those that are going to be trending down. And what we've seen is in the top scoring regions, it's either regions with a lot of rosé, like Provence or uh, Côte du Rhône, or you're looking at Spanish wines like Rioja. Okay, and so, so you, those seems to be the two big trends. Okay, so you just opened up a very big door when you talk about rosé. I want to hold that thought, if you wouldn't mind, Pauline, and we'll jump into that in just a second. What a pleasure to have on the line Pauline Uda. She is the Managing Director for Soprexa USA, which is a huge, huge international marketing firm specializing in the food, wine, and spirits industries. And they do some amazing things. Things have some amazing accounts, by the way, and it's really worth, I think, going to the Sopexa website and checking out some of the stuff that you have there in the portfolio because you guys are doing some really cutting-edge stuff. Thank you. I appreciate the, the kudos there. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's uh, some beautiful campaigns that you can look at there. Anyway, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters in just a second, so stay with me. Go fill up your glass. Maybe make it a uh, garnacha, or uh, we're going to talk rosé, so you might want to pop open a bottle of that. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in the quaint, friendly, and historic town of Atascadero, California. Don't forget to join our Grape Encounters Radio Facebook group page 
where incredibly fun people just like you share ideas and frequently get together to share a bottle as well. We like to talk about wine. are listening to America's number one wine radio show, Grape Encounters with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, California. Uh, We're back with Grape Encounters Radio and talking about the 2016 Wine Trade Monitor with the Managing Director of Sopexa USA, Pauline Uda. And we're now going to get into a trend that I certainly have been talking a lot about, at least in private conversations, probably have not talked about it as much on the air. And so glad to get into the subject of rosé, because rosé is probably one of the most misunderstood wines. People have their ideas about what a rosé is, but I think there's a lot to learn in this category. And it seems like the consumers are definitely learning. What's your take on it, Pauline? Rosé, definitely red hot, right? It's absolutely red hot. When we spoke to the trade about this, when we asked them what were the trends that they were expecting to see for the next two years, rosé came up for 40% of them as the first thing they mentioned. So it's on everybody's mind. It is also becoming, interestingly, a wine that's coming out of its season. So it used to be only for the summer months, you know, it's sort of like you would take it out with your uh, summer whites and you'd put it back away as soon as uh, you had to put away the white shoes. And that's not the case anymore. We're really seeing it come out as a great food pairing wine. And therefore, it's sticking around on restaurant menus and in stores a little bit longer. Now, some of that is star power, you know, the Brangelina wines of the world. But it's not just that. It's a very easy wine to drink, to appreciate, and consumers are realizing that it's no longer the, you know, white Zinfandel of your grandmother that was overly sweet, and it's really become this beautiful, dry wine that will come from the sunny areas of Europe. What do you attribute people's discovering of rosé to? What is it that consumers are learning about rosé that they didn't know before, and where is this enlightenment coming from? So I think a lot of it came initially from just the trend. You know, it it was a hit, uh, like I said, you know, the star power part of it. But as they tasted it, they realized that it was actually very easy. And easy is something that American consumers are looking for in terms of wine. What we're seeing is really two strong trends, and rosé is at the crossroads of those. One is an increased in premiumization of the wines. So consumers are inching up on average above that $10 bottle. And we're now really, you know, at that $10 to $20 bottle, which was not the case a few years ago. But at the same time, they're using it and drinking it in a more casual way. So it's not just something when you're at the restaurant or when you are invited over for dinner. You're actually going to open a bottle of wine when you're watching your favorite TV show 
or the Super Bowl has now become a wine drinking event as well. It's not just beer anymore. Yeah, but the idea, that, the idea of sitting down with a glass of rosé and watching the Super Bowl just feels wrong to me, right? And I think there is a lot of misconception that people have to overcome where rosé is concerned in order to give it that kind of acceptance, but it does seem like it's happening. It definitely seems like it's happening. Obviously, it feels more right when you're opening it as you're having a, a picnic on the beach than maybe sitting down for the Super Bowl, which feels like that should be more of a, you know, Tuscan red kind of a wine time. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there definitely are those times that feel very appropriate for an easygoing, drunk, cold, I don't have to think too much about the label as long as it comes from the right region. Yeah, and I think there's more continuity where rosé is concerned than other wines. You know, if you pick 10 random rosés and you picked 10 random whites and 10 random reds, I think you'd find more of the rosés pleasurable in sheer numbers than the other ones. I think it's a very reliable style of wine. It's hard to go wrong. You yeah. know, as long, again, as long as you go, well you said, pick from yeah. the right region, you know, you pick a, a rosé from Provence or from Rhone, the likelihood of you picking a bad one, it would be a shocker, especially here in the U.S., where obviously there's already a, a first um, pre-selection before it hits the market. So it's a very easy wine. Well, I and think I think American consumers like it. There are two misconceptions that you have to overcome. One is that pink is sweet. That was a hard mountain to climb for retailers because people would see pink, yeah. they'd think white Zinfandel. You know, then rosé started to flood the market. But I also think that people tend to see rosé as feminine and it's anything but in many cases. And we're seeing definitely a lot of rosés in restaurants promoted by all the new crowd of young sommeliers. And it's a great group wine, um, which means that uh, you do see a lot of guys drinking it because, like you said, it's a wine that pretty much everybody can enjoy. If you get one of those big red wines, the likelihood is half of the table isn't going to love it. And that means you got to go for a second bottle, whereas rosé is just sort of a universal one. Okay, so rosé is here to stay. And last subject, we have just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to make sure that we talked about it because it's the one that makes my skin crawl the most, is screw caps versus corks. You had some interesting conclusions there. Tell us about it. Well, what we've seen here, and again, our research is based on asking the trade where they see trends going. And what they are saying is that they're seeing an increase in screw caps. Now, actually, this trend may be linked to the one we were just talking about. If we're talking about those easygoing wines that aren't meant to be aged, then screw caps actually make a lot of sense. You know, it's a whole lot easier to open up the bottle when you're on the beach for your picnic if it's screw cap. Now, if we're talking about wines that are supposed to age, then that jury is still out because we don't have the feedback of many years of screw caps to see if it's going to age the same way. Right now, what most experts believe is you're safer with a high-quality bottle if it's with a cork. Yeah. I will say, though, the convenience is a great asset to the screw cap, but we've also seen an interesting trend in recent years with the advent of devices like the Coravin that allow us to take just a little bit of wine at one time and preserve a quality wine for a longer period of time. The screw cap really, excuse the pun, but really screws things up terribly. And again, I think there, you know, we're talking about the right top for the right product. 
I have personally no issue with seeing a screw top on a bottle of easy to drink Moscato that's, you know, for right now, it will never age. It's not meant to age. And it's not a wine you're planning on keeping. Um, It's, you know, a a, a aperitif cocktail. I totally agree. But I don't like seeing screw caps on, you know, $60, $80 bottles bottles. of wines. I just I just have a problem with that. But anyway, I'm a diehard romantic, Pauline. And uh, I I, and there is there is a level of pleasure that is supposed to come with wine. And part of that pleasure is also hearing that beautiful popping sound as the cork comes out. And that's part of the mystique. And if you take that away, it's the little clink of opening the screw cap doesn't quite have the same charm. Yeah, definitely. Hey, so you guys produced a really nice infographic that goes along with this study. Is that something that people can find online and look at? Is that available? Um, That's a very good question. But now that you're asking, I'll make sure to uh, ask that we put it up. I got an even better idea. We'll put it on grapeencounters.com. Perfect. There. We do can, that. We can do that. that way of, thank you. Yeah, but definitely check out the Sopexa site. Very interesting business that you're in. And before I let you go, I do want to ask you about digital marketing in the wine and spirits industry. How much have things shifted in that direction, you know, versus traditional marketing? Well, there's two schools of thought with that. Um, obviously, we were just talking about it with the cork. Wine is very much a a product of pleasure, of interaction. And it's very important to get that product in the hand of consumers so that they can taste it and appreciate it. However, when we're talking about branding, especially when we're trying to talk to the new generation of consumers, they are online. That's the only place where you're going to reach them, either online or directly on their mobile. So if you want to talk to your consumer, you got to go where they are. And that means either at events where they are, because experiential is key, but to communicate content, digital is absolutely essential, and that goes through social and mobile. And I think what's amazing about it, and it's the one thing that I really appreciate about digital marketing and just the entire digital way that we communicate these days, it really levels the playing field for smaller producers who have great products but don't have a huge marketing budget. And because these consumers are online and because they do search the internet for tips on wine, you can compete as a small producer with the giants, really. Especially that a small producer who is willing to share his day-to-day thoughts is going to have that authentic content and is going to be able to create resonance that is very hard to create for a big brand because you don't have just one or two people behind it, right? It's a whole machine. Definitely. Hey, listen, Pauline, it's been a real pleasure having you on. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today and jump through this study a little bit. Pauline Udat, she is the Managing Director for Sopexa USA. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to come on. All right. We're going to be back with more Grape Encounters, including Sarah Schneider, wine editor from Sunset Magazine, when we return right after this. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue right after this. And while you're listening to these important messages, we are going to sip into something more comfortable. She once described a wine as a dusty old trunk from the attic, and we were all glad she was doing the sipping. It's Sipping with Sarah, with Sunset Magazine's Sarah Schneider, on Grape Encounters Radio. Because when you're high on that 
We are back with Grape Encounters Radio and another edition of Stump the Sarah. Oh, I thought it was Sipping with Sarah. Oh, no, we changed it, Sarah. I have a bottle of wine here. I'm sitting across the table from the inimitable Sarah Schneider, wine editor of Sunset Magazine, one of the most beloved wine writers on planet Earth. Oh, you're good to No, me. people That's love you. Fair. You're the people's wine writer. You realize well, that, right? Well, wine for the people. I know, but the language gets just a little stuffy in most wine publications for the average Joe. I suppose And then you lose them, right? You know, I can geek out too, but then I have to pull myself off the cliff, back from the brink, and say, it's just a beverage. Well... Pretty fun beverage. Yeah, it's a pretty fun beverage. But yeah, yeah, you're right. And I think that the lion's share of the public would like us to spend, us meaning you, me, and everybody else that's writing about wine, I think they'd much rather hear us say, here's a wine you should look out for, or a type of wine that you should look out for. Enjoy it, because it's crazy. Delicious. That's true. One of the first questions I ever asked you some years ago was I said, Do you prefer to describe a wine as having hints of leather and cassis and dark fruit or whatever, or would you prefer to just be able to say it's yummy? Do you remember (laughs) what your answer was? I'm hoping it was yummy. Yeah, yeah. That was your answer, and that was a good answer. All right. So let's go back to this little entry that I have put in front of you. Okay. So talk talk to me about it now. And let me explain why I did this, by the way, because this wine is, I think, something a little different or a lot different than what we normally talk about. I didn't mean for it to be a way to embarrass you because I would think that probably 99 out of 100 people would not get this one. Okay. You'll see if I'm in the 99. Well, let's or just see one. what, what, tell me your observations and then I want to tell people why they should be looking for this. Okay. Okay. Actually, this is a really good thing for me to be doing. I love this. I don't know anything about this wine. Um, it's, it's red, Sarah. It's, it's, it's red. red. I can see that it's red. So it's a chance to actually not have any preconceived notions. I don't know that that is Syrah or Pinot Noir. And so I'm looking for the general personality of the wine. Do you like it? Yes. You do I like can, it. I do like this wine. I would really probably not bring a bottle of wine in here that you wouldn't like. <laughs> I just couldn't do that. So I have no reference points for this wine. I can't pick out that it's one variety. So I'm guessing maybe it's a blend. But it has the body almost leaning towards lighter bodied Pinot Noir, but it doesn't have the character of a pure Pinot Noir. It's almost earthy, dusty, like an Italian variety would be. And it has a fair amount of acidity. Sarah. Yeah. What did you just say? An Italian variety. Did you peek when I used the restroom on the break? I did not. You know, I would not do that. All right. I'll give it to you. No, I'm just kidding you. Sarah, I'm (laughs) kidding you. But from here or from over there? I need another sip. This is one of the few jobs that you can have that in order to do your job well, you have to continue to drink. So what's in my head right now with that question is... Is it about earth or is it about fruit? That's kind of my old world, new world distinction. And this actually tastes of some sweet, warm fruit. And so I would actually say this is California, maybe an Italian variety from California. So your observation was spectacular, oh. but incorrect. Okay. <laughs> but are you ready for me to disclose? Absolutely. Let's, you are. Re- let's okay. reveal. And would you please tell listeners the pathetic way that I have disguised this <laughs> bottle with all of the wine accessories that I have? I grabbed this and wrapped it up this so way. So he has this bottle disguised in a sunset jute bag, which I love. The wine is now in a sunset context. Yes. Okay. So I think I'm going to give Sarah both a great thrill and a big wow. So, read them and weep, baby. I was right and I was wrong. Well, you were right and you were right, if you ask me. (laughs) 
that's that's a good spin. Because when you said that lushness of warm yeah. fruit, there is an explanation as to why you have that in this wine. So let's just tell them what you've got in your hand now. I have a bottle of Valpolicella Ripasso in my hand, and it is from Villa Borghetti in Italy. And tell us why it has that warm, sweet fruit in it. It has that warm, sweet fruit because this Ripasso process makes for some very delicious but also very expensive wines. And that's because they take the fruit and they divide it up into, let's say, two equal amounts of fruit. But half of that fruit gets dried down, and they let a lot of the moisture evaporate from the fruit. The word ripasso simply means to pass through. So they take the juice, the part that wasn't dried down, and they pass it through this very intensified, I don't like to call them raisins. I like to call them sun-dried tomatoes made out of grapes, because it's more like that consistency. And it gives you this luscious, beautiful, fruity wine. And contrary to what most people would think, it's not a sweet wine at all. No, it's not. Very Even dry. though there's, you know, twice as much fruit concentrated in there. And it makes for a very, very fun wine. So if you look for either Rapasso or Amarone at your wine shop, right? either one of those is likely to lead you to a pretty terrific bottle of wine. Because when somebody's making this style of wine, they're not going to mess around with inferior grapes, typically. It's very labor-intensive. It's, it's very costly to make it. It's not something that you want to make with junk. And I kind of think of these styles of wine with a concentrated base in there of the of the dried fruit as old world wines for new world palates. That's pretty clever, yeah. That fruit fooled me. Yeah, but you can see where that would compensate for the lightness that you would typically expect out of an old world wine, but this gives it a double whammy of fruit, right? which would make it very complicated for somebody to guess, I think. This is a beautiful bottle. Is this something that is widely available? Um, I don't know how widely available it is. I had never seen this label before. But by the way, a very un-Italian label. It is. When you say as well, it's pink and handwritten. Right. But the other interesting thing about this wine is I think it retails for about $35. It's a real value. If you were to buy an Amarone, think 80 plus for a good one. This wine, about 35 bucks. Great value. That's a great value, isn't it? Yeah, beautiful wine. Okay, and then the other thing about this is the grape itself that is in this wine, and that would be largely Corvina. Right. Corvina. Doesn't that sound like a little Italian sports car? (laughs) Yeah. You want to go for a ride up the coast in my Corvina? Anyway, delicious grape. It is. Corvina. So we give this wine what? A rating? I would actually give this, I would give that a 93. That is exactly what I gave it. Is that true? That is exactly what I would give it. This wine is a real treasure, I think. Yeah. And I've got two more opportunities to stump the Sarah (laughs) in the next couple of weeks. I hope they taste this good. Yeah, but you know, I wasn't trying to pull one over on you, right? I think I made it very clear that this would be a hard one to guess. You did. And it was. But actually, you did better than most people would have on that one. Oh, that makes me feel a little bit better. Okay, good. All right. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters Radio. That's going to do it for Sipping with Sarah. It's not going to do it. We're just going to do it again next week. I'm for that. Okay. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. 